confession of the church in Lord's Day 42. It begins with the question, what does God forbid in the Eighth Commandment? God forbids not only outright theft and robbery, but also such wicked schemes and devices as false weights and measures, deceptive merchandising, counterfeit money, and usury. We must not defraud our neighbor in any way, whether by force or by show of right. In addition, God forbids all greed and all abuse or squandering of his gifts. What does God require of you in this commandment? I must promote my neighbor's good wherever I can and may. Deal with him as I would like others to deal with me. And work faithfully so that I may be able to give to those in need. So far, the Heidelberg Catechism. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, um, Christianity is a material religion. That may sound a bit strange when you hear it for the first time, so let me say right away, of course, that Christianity is not a materialistic religion. Materialism in philosophy means the belief that matter and energy are absolute and that there is no realm of the supernatural. So the vast majority of scientists today are scientific materialists who do not believe that there is anything transcending what they can study with their scientific devices. Atoms and molecules are the sum of reality. And related to that, materialism is a lifestyle devoted to the pursuit of money, and the accumulation of property and things as the highest end in life. And it's probably fair to say that that is the working philosophy of most of your neighbors. Now, there's no doubt that the Bible rejects materialism in these two senses. The Bible absolutely rejects what is called scientific materialism, and it absolutely rejects also materialism as a way of life. Nonetheless, the fact remains that the biblical faith is entirely a material religion. The Bible, in other words, strongly endorses the goodness and the value of the material world. And that's different from other religions, which find the material world to be an impediment to spirituality. For example, some of the Greeks thought the human body was an impediment to spirituality true spirituality, and that owning anything of any kind was an impediment to true spirituality. And so there are many religious movements in the world that advocate poverty and simplicity and having as little to do with earthly things as possible because these other religions do not understand the teaching of the Bible concerning the goodness, the sheer goodness of the material world that God has made. The Bible is very positive about the human body. The Bible regularly celebrates the beauty and the joy of the natural world. Because for the Bible, the entire realm in which you live is our Father's world. When you are in this building, you are in our Father's world. When you go home and sit in your garden, you are in our Father's world. When you climb a mountain, you are in our Father's world. If you work in a factory and you go to work tomorrow, then you are in your Father's world working with things that your Father in heaven has created, like rocks and metal and wood and so many other material products. And we cannot forget that at the heart of the Bible's message is the story of the Son of God becoming flesh the Son of God becoming part of our material world. And at the end of the Bible, we find a glorious picture of God's material world restored and perfected and delivered from pain and suffering of every kind. And so from beginning to end, the Bible has a lot to say about the realm of stuff, the realm of material things, the realm of money, the realm of property. Today we will listen to the Bible's message regarding the material world as it comes to a focus in the Eighth Commandment 
And we will see this afternoon how the Eighth Commandment points us to three truths. First, the pleasure of goods. And secondly, the peril of greed. And thirdly, the path of generosity. First, then, the pleasure of earthly goods. You know, many of you will have seen uh, clips, video clips from the World Economic Forum that have made their, made their rounds in our society over the last months and even a couple of years. There's one famous video of the World Economic Forum in which a very serious-looking individual intones solemnly that in the coming days, pretty soon, within just a few years, all of you will own nothing and you will be happy. Uh, That's something that they're trying to convince the world of. A picture of our lives in the not-too-distant future in which you won't have a deed to your property, you won't actually own a vehicle, and all the things in your house also, they won't really be yours. They'll belong to everyone. They'll belong to the government ultimately. So that video is trying to influence society in such a way that private property just won't be a thing anymore. It won't be something that we expect. It won't be something that we live for. It certainly won't be something that we die for. Everything will be owned by everybody, which means by nobody. And if you are a good person and you have a good social credit score, then you will get an allowance and you'll get a place to live, but it won't actually be yours. Now, for a long time before this video of the World Economic Forum came out, of course, Marxism and socialism, communism, have seen private property as something profoundly evil. In fact, people like Karl Marx saw private property as a source of all evil in the world. There was no other source of evil except the existence of private property. Well, unfortunately for all these dreamers and utopian thinkers, the Eighth Commandment is present still in the world. It's present in God's holy law. And that Eighth Commandment contains a very inconvenient truth for all of these social dreamers and utopian thinkers. The inconvenient truth which puts a monkey wrench into all of their schemes is that God has ordained private property as his will for the world. God wants people to own things. God wants people to have things about which they can say, this belongs to me. This house belongs to me. This car belongs to me. This furniture belongs to me. This piano belongs to me. This guitar belongs to me. God wants individuals and God wants households to own things. He blesses people with his good gifts And he wants people to have ownership of those things with which he blesses them. If you think about it, if there was no such thing as private property, there couldn't really be an Eighth Commandment. If nobody owned anything, then you wouldn't be able to steal anything. Because stealing, by definition, means taking for yourself something that belongs to somebody else. Both the thief and the one from whom he steals have a very clear idea of private property, don't they? If you have something in your house which you think is yours, let's say it's, it's your nice track FX3 bicycle that you spent $1,000 on and it's stowed in your shed in your backyard, you believe this is yours and you would say, this is my bike. But the thief comes by night and maybe you forgot to lock it up or he cuts the lock and then he says that what was yours is now mine. What he stole from you, he treats now as his private property. And remarkably, he will defend that private property that he stole from you with force. So if you try and go and take it back from him, he will use force to to defend what he stole from you. So the thief understands private property, and so does the one from whom things are stolen. In the Old Testament, the Lord bestowed very specific property on specific tribes and households kind of goes like from the tribe to the clan to the household. And God very specifically earmarked a certain number of acres for every single household in Israel. The land was surveyed by Joshua's people in the time of Joshua. It was marked off by landmarks. So God was giving property to his individual people. 
so they could say, this is my land. This is my land, which I received from the hand of the Lord. And that land was all marked off by uh, landmarks. And the Old Testament on several occasions places a curse from God upon anyone who would dare to move his neighbor's landmark. You can imagine how that might go. You go out sneakily at night and you find the landmark and you move it over 12 feet or 15 feet or 20 feet and you hope that nobody comes around in the near future and the grass can grow up all around it again and maybe nobody will even notice that you moved your neighbor's landmark. But God says that his wrath is upon people who do this because they are depriving their fellow Israelites of property that God in his infinite wisdom has ceded to them. So God ordains private property and all healthy human societies have recognized the right of ownership and the right of private property. And so if we have things that are ours, we don't need to be ashamed of that. Whether it be little or whether it be much, we may receive from the hand of the Lord whatever he bestows upon us. In fact, in 1 Timothy 4, the Apostle Paul says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. And so if you receive God's gift to you with thanksgiving, then those gifts, congregation, are holy. Then they're not just ordinary things anymore, but they're holy things. And God says to you, I've given this to you, I've placed it under your ownership and under your care, and I desire from you that you would enjoy my gift to you. And so you shouldn't have a crisis of conscience about being able to live in a decent home. If God has given you that possibility, then you don't need to feel ashamed that you are living in a decent home when perhaps others are not. And if you're able to enjoy a fine dinner with good wine on your birthday or your anniversary, then that's God's gift to you and you shouldn't feel ashamed. And you shouldn't feel bad if you want a nice speaker system for your house because you are a lover of good music and you like to crank it up sometimes and listen to music the way you think it should be listened to. And if you're a young person and you own a snowboard that you like to use for recreation in the winter, then you can enjoy all of these good things with a clean conscience. You don't have to worry that somehow you're being materialistic because you own stuff and have stuff about which you say, this is mine. Now, of course, there are a few cautions here that we need to issue right away regarding God's gifts to you. First one is that God retains ultimate ownership of everything he gives you. Psalm 24, which we sang and which was our call to worship also this afternoon, says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness, that means everything on the earth, everything that God put on the earth and everything that humans create out of God's things that he's put into the earth. The earth and all human products upon the earth, all of these says Psalm 24, belong to Yahweh God. They belong to our Father who is in heaven. And so when you read a verse like that, you, you need to realize that there's a lot of danger in the word mine. It's one of the first words little kids learn, apparently. At least my little kids did, and some of my grandkids learned that word pretty quick. This is mine. This is my truck. And you can't have it. It's my truck. I'm playing with it, and you can't have it. Well, adults do the same a little bit more sophisticatedly, perhaps. But for a Christian, the word mine is something we need to use carefully. And we need to be more concerned with the word yours. Yours, O oh God. A Christian walks around his house or his condo or his basement suite. And he doesn't say, wow, this is mine. He says, no, Lord, this is all yours. You are the giver of all gifts, and this is yours, ultimately. You're entrusting it to my care, and from a human legal perspective, I'm the owner of this material stuff, but ultimately, it's yours. And the Christian believer goes to his nice business that he's built up from the ground, 
and he has satisfaction in going to his business and seeing what he has built up from the ground. And such a person has to guard himself against the sin of pride. And the way to guard himself against the sin of pride is by saying and confessing, this is not what I have built, but this is what God has given to me. I am enjoying the gifts of God to me. This is all from the Lord, and therefore, blessed be his holy name. You know, we can use Lord's Day 1 here as a guide. Lord's Day 1, we confess that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And we can say the same about all of our stuff and our money. We can say about it, it's not our own. But it all belongs to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. So the money in your banks, the money in your investments, the home you own, or the lesser things that you might own, all of them are actually, ultimately, the property of Yahweh, the Lord your God. And in connection with this, we can think for a moment, perhaps, of the summary of the law that we know from Deuteronomy 6. The Lord says that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And that means that everything that you have created out of your strength, everything that you have made, everything that you have accomplished, we are to love the Lord our God with all of that stuff, with all that we have made of our lives. And so we should always be asking, Lord, you are the one who's entrusted dollars to me and many other things. You've placed it under my stewardship. I'm the legal owner of all of these things from the perspective of human law. And so, Lord God, help me, please, to live responsibly in a stewardly fashion with all of these good things that you have put into my care. Help me to manage all of them in such a way that I'm not pursuing my own little kingdom, but I'm seeking your kingdom first and its righteousness with all that you have entrusted to my care. Because you see, if people focus only on property rights, and Christians do this sometimes, Christians are amongst the most fervent defenders of property rights, and they're very suspicious of socialist grabs by the government, the state, and they should be. But, you know, if you focus only on your property rights without any regard for God's ultimate sovereignty over you and your property, then it's inevitable that corruption will set in. It will set into your heart. It will set into your life. It will set into your church, into everything that you do. Because without that dynamic, you see, of thanksgiving to the God who gives you all good things and accompanying that, a strong sense of stewardship, without thanksgiving and stewardship, you know what will happen to your society, and you'll be part of it, and you'll be guilty for it. Your society will will just catapult into one form of social injustice or another. There'll be ruthless capitalism. Without thanksgiving and without stewardship, there will be ruthless capitalism, or else there will be deadening socialism. And really, the only thing that prevents us from falling into one of those terrible errors of ruthless capitalism or deadening socialism or communism is this wondrous Christian dynamic of thanksgiving and stewardship before the face of Almighty God who has blessed us in Christ with every good gift. And so to summarize, God does bless you, his people, with many material gifts. It's not unspiritual to value those gifts. It's not unspiritual to enjoy those gifts. In fact, I would say it's most unspiritual, and in fact, it is demonic to be somehow feeling bad about those good gifts that God has entrusted to you for you to enjoy and to use for his glory. And so the material religion of the Bible, not the materialist religion of the Bible, but the material religion of the Bible sends you home with the message to go and enjoy without any twinge of conscience the good things which God, your Father in heaven, has entrusted into your care, whether it be much or little. Along with the pleasure of goods, however, there's also peril. It's our second point, the peril of greed. You know, when your life is overflowing with God's material gifts, 
the danger is always, and it's a very real danger, we need to be really modestly, um, modest as we assess our vulnerability to this danger. shouldn't think that somehow this is a danger only for others. The danger is that as God's gifts overflow to you, that these gifts actually begin to matter to you much more than the giver. And you can tell that the gifts are mattering too much when you think a lot about getting more of them. If you're kind of obsessed with getting more money into your control and more stuff under your authority and more property of which you are the legal owner, and that's kind of what drives you and motivates you. It's something you think about a lot. Then perhaps these gifts are beginning to matter to you more than the giver himself. When you already have good things from God, when you already have everything you legitimately could claim to need, but your heart is still filled with a desire for more, then you have a serious problem according to the Word of God. That Word of God which teaches a material religion nonetheless says to you, those material things are beginning to mean too much to you. They are becoming your idol in which you trust, in which you locate your your meaning and from which you derive your purpose. Valuing the gift more than the giver congregation is not just a problem. It's a spiritual catastrophe, actually. And our Lord Jesus Christ talks about it a lot in the Gospels. We saw that in our reading this afternoon from Matthew chapter 6. The Lord Jesus paints a picture there for us of a person who is, he says, laying up the wrong kind of treasure. Jesus says, let me read it again, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. You know, in the ancient world of the New Testament, clothing was a precious commodity. You couldn't just go to Walmart and and buy a t-shirt for $10 or so. That wasn't possible in the ancient world. Clothing was hard to make, and therefore it was valuable. Clothing was typically made of wool. Wool was worth a lot of money. Some clothing was made of silk, and silk was literally worth its weight in gold in the time of the Lord Jesus. So if you had a pound of silk, you could do an even trade for a pound of gold. That's how valuable silk was because it came from far away and it was made hard to make. This is why the soldiers on the cross drew lots to see who would get the seamless cloak worn by the Lord Jesus Christ. They wanted to have it because it was worth a lot of money. You didn't bring it to the Sally Ann when you were tired of it. Clothing was valuable and clothing was vulnerable And that's what Jesus is talking about with its reference to moths. Imagine you spent a fortune on a new silk item of clothing. Uh, You went to Jerusalem to the market and some traders had brought it from Arabia and you put down your shekels and you took it home and you wore it to a festive event and then you put it in your cupboard and forgot about it until the next festive event came around and when you took it out of the cupboard you were utterly dismayed because the moth had got to it. The larva of the moth had wrecked your beautiful silk clothing. It was full of holes. Something as tiny as a wee little larva, almost invisible, of a moth can do terrible damage to a silk garment. And Jesus talks also about rust. He talks about how rust destroys. It's a word that's usually connected to the corrosion of metals. But in this case, scholars figure the word rust means actually something like eating. Scholars think it refers to creatures which eat through precious crops of wheat or barley or which may destroy the figs when they ripen on the tree or the grapes on the vine. Imagine you lived in ancient Israel and you came to your vineyard to check check the progress of the crops and you notice that some kind of fungus was eating away at your crop. And nobody knew anything about fungicides in those days. And all you could do is watch helplessly as your crop was literally eaten away. 
Or you have a wheat field, and then one day there's an east wind, and all of a sudden the air is filled with whirring locusts, and they descend upon your field. And the next thing you know, the field is completely bare. I once had the experience of weeding a corn patch in Manitoba, and it was a beautiful corn patch. And we weeded it, and it looked fantastic. And the next morning, we went out to look at it again, and it was all gone because the neighbor's cows had broken out and eaten all that corn. That wasn't meant for them, but for people. Well, something like that Jesus is talking about here. You have this precious crop, and all of a sudden, it's gone. And even after you harvest it, it's still vulnerable because you put it into some kind of a barn, and the next thing you know, the rats are getting to it, or the mice, and it's all contaminated by rodents. So this, this verse that Jesus um, speaks in Matthew 6 is really painting a picture for us of, of how just about any kind of human wealth can be and frequently is eaten away by forces completely beyond our control. Whether that be bugs or inflation. And the third scenario that Jesus paints in Matthew 6 involves someone who had collected some valuable jewels, some silver and gold coins, and hid them in a secret compartment in the wall of his brick house. And one day this person came home from the market and he saw that someone had broken through the external wall of his house through the bricks and had found his secret compartment and had taken away all his treasures, maybe his life savings, because he didn't really have banks in those days or something like that. You kept your savings in your house. And so in a moment, all the wealth of this individual disappeared. And through this teaching, <clears throat> the Lord Jesus Christ is highlighting a crucial truth. He's telling us that if you spend your life's energy laying up treasures on earth, if these are what matter to you the most, then you are setting yourself up for a great tragedy. Even if the locusts never come, and even if the rats never visit, and even if the thieves never find your safe, death will come. Death will come for sure, for everyone. And what will death do? Death will separate you from all your treasures in a moment of time. I think you've all seen the, the little cartoon of a, a hearse on the way to the cemetery, and it's got a big U-Haul behind it with all the earthly possessions of the person who's about to be buried, and it's meant to make a mockery of that, of course. But isn't that sometimes how we live? We, we seem to live sometimes as though all of these things are forever going to be ours. We're going to take them all along with us, even to the grave. If you look in the, in the tombs of the ancient pharaohs, they're full of treasures. If you ever find a tomb that no one else has ever found before, it's going to be full of treasures because the loved ones of the pharaohs would put all their earthly treasures in their tomb with them in the hope that they could somehow benefit from them even in the afterlife. And to prevent this foolish tragedy from happening to his disciples, Jesus says in verse 20 of Matthew 6, Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. What does it mean then to lay up treasures in heaven? Well, it means, congregation, that with your whole life's energy, you are seeking God's kingdom, which is coming. You're seeking God's kingdom because it's coming, because it's sure, and because it's the only thing that lasts forever. It's the only thing really worth seeking because it's the only thing that truly endures. And so instead of devoting your life's energy to building up the wealth of your own household, Jesus wants you to devote your life's energy to the coming of God's kingdom. If you think about it, why does a greedy person keep wanting more? Why is it never enough for a greedy person? Why, is, why does a greedy person never just reach that point of being satisfied. 
Why isn't there a magazine out there that's called Perfectly Satisfying Homes and Gardens? Why does it have to be Better Homes and Gardens? Why can't people just be satisfied with what they currently have received from the hand of the Lord? And I believe, congregation, it's because people are not focusing their hearts on the priceless, imperishable inheritance which God has promised for all who put their faith in the Lord Jesus. Peter talks about this in 1 Peter 1, verse 4. I'm quoting now from the NLT. He says in verse 4, Now we live with great expectation, and we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God has an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you? You know, Israel called their share in the land of Canaan, they called it their inheritance. But God has a much greater inheritance for all of his children. He's he's promised you a share in the new creation. And that share is something that cannot be lost. It can't be tainted. It's beyond the reach of moth and, and rust and all the things that consume human wealth. And if you are fully occupied with that hope of faith, then you want to know something? Greed will never be able to get a hold of you. It just won't be able to. Because in your heart, there is this burning expectation and confident hope of something so magnificent, something that is so completely fulfilling already now in this life that you don't even have to want more stuff because you're on the way to the very best thing there is, the good things of God's eternal kingdom. And so the only way to diffuse greed is to set your heart on Christ who is coming again to take you to himself and to live with you in eternity in a very material world. Don't forget that when the Lord Jesus comes again, he will give us resurrection bodies, double real resurrection bodies, not ethereal spiritual bodies merely, but they'll be flesh and blood bodies and we'll live in a real world with real trees and real birds and real flowers and no doubt, real human cultural artifacts, pianos maybe, and guitars and flutes and harps and what have you. That's the world we're going to. That, that's the world that already started when Jesus rose from the dead. And that's the world in which you are already participating because the Bible says that if anyone is in Christ, he is new creation. And so that's how you diffuse greed. You diffuse it by focusing your heart and mind fully on the Lord Jesus Christ and his coming kingdom. Now, how can a person really um, grow in this type of mindset? Well, that takes us to the last point, the path of generosity. The hallmark of Christian faith is not simply saving, although that's one of the hallmarks of Christian faith, I would suppose. Christians are people who tend to save their money. They don't just spend it all recklessly but they try to save some of it for the future and for possible needs that may arise in the kingdom of God. But the hallmark of Christians' congregation is not in the first place being careful savers. The hallmark of Christianity is being generous givers. It's always been something that Christians have been famous for. And thankfully, we can still say that the most generous people in Canada today are Christian believers. We know that because the government tells us a lot about charitable giving, and it's very easy to find out that most of the charitable giving is coming from devoted Christian people. So Christians have always been well-known for their generosity. And you see, every time you give something of your money to a need that has arisen in the world, or in your family, or in the church community, whenever you write a check or do an e-transfer to your local church, supporting the ministry of the word here, supporting the ministry of the word in your broader community and in, in the broader world, you know what you're really saying every time you do that? You're saying, I am a free man. I am a free woman. I am not ruled by greed. 
I'm not ruled by envy. I'm not ruled by Kevinine. I'm not ruled by all kinds of insecurities so that I have to stuff as much money as I possibly can into, into the bank. No, I am free because I am God's child and I'm on the way to the kingdom and God will provide for me and God has told me that he loves a generous giver and so I'm just going to do what God tells me to do. I'm free to share all that I have because I'm on the way to the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you find it hard to give, maybe you're not, maybe you're not ready to admit that. Maybe it's a very personal topic. But maybe you do find it hard to give. Maybe, maybe you think, you know, I'm just going to give this much this month, but you, you actually know you could give way more. Maybe it's just painful for you to let the money go through your fingers and give it away to some worthy cause. Well, I would say to you, if it's kind of painful for you to give, then you need to do what we might call a personal eschatology test or checkup. Ask yourself this question. Am I living only for the here and the now? Am I living just so I can have a decent life for 70 or 80 or 90 years in this present form of the world? Is that what all my actions are about? Or am I aiming my life for the kingdom which is to come? I would say that generous giving is a good sign of living in true hope. And lack of generous giving may well be a warning sign to you that perhaps you're not actually truly loving with great expectation toward the coming of the kingdom of God. But not only is generous giving a sign of true hope, generous giving is also something that nurtures true hope. If you are putting your money and your energy and your time towards the future realities of God's kingdom, you know what happens? Your heart follows your money. Your heart follows where you put your energy. Maybe that sounds a bit strange, so let me give an, give an example. Someone told me this example from his personal life. You know, some of the Reformed folks um, own and operate an orphanage in Mexico. And so this fellow told me that he had written a check in the amount of $500 for the support of this orphanage in Mexico because it had been on the radar of his local church. There had been an offering. And so he thought he would write a check for $500. And he found that by the act of writing that check, he all of a sudden became far more interested in what was actually going on in that orphanage. And he proceeded to learn as much as he could about it. And he became more and more excited about it. And he was motivated to give more money to it. And you see what's going? He's donating, and his heart is following his donation. He's laying up treasure in heaven, you might say, and his heart is following where he's laying up his treasure. And so the rule is very simple. The more you pour your life's energy and resources into the work of God's kingdom, the more you will be interested in the coming of that kingdom in its fullness and glory. And so if your generosity isn't where you think it should be, if you find it painful to take out your wallet or your checkbook, you know how you can stir it up? By giving. Just give. Maybe the first $100 will be very painful, but then you'll find out that your heart will follow your money and the second $100 won't be nearly as painful and maybe you'll find a joy in giving and then the third time you'll want to give more, perhaps. So the more you invest in the coming of the kingdom, the more the coming of the kingdom will capture your heart. It's like Jesus said in Matthew 6, verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Think about that. Think about your discretionary giving. Think about where it's going. Your discretionary spending, I should say. Is it just all about you and what you want and your pleasure? Or is your discretionary spending really oriented toward the coming of the kingdom of God? So the choice of the Eighth Commandment is really on the one hand, we can live for the here and the now. We can do what lots of people in our society do. 
scramble to get their share of the pie. Hopefully a nice big share of it. And if we're unscrupulous, we can even steal to increase our share, or we can lie on our tax return, or we can defraud somebody, or we can make some money perhaps in the black market, which is starting to become a thing again as taxation burdens increase and as living costs go up. That, that idea of, of a black hidden market where people are doing deals without any government awareness of their deals. You can be part of that world, scrambling through life to get your share of the pie and never getting to the point at which you say it is enough. Or, on the other hand, we can live as God's people with confidence in his care, confidence in his love, and liberated from the need to always have more, always have better, always have bigger, always have fancier. Instead of seeking to get more, we can seek to give more. You see, you you may never pray to God to give you more than the basic needs of life. If God is blessing you with the basic needs of life, then you should never go to God and say, give me more. But there's one way in which you may lawfully ask God to give you more. You may say to God, this is a very honorable prayer. You might say to God, Lord God, last year you enabled me to give $3,000 to charity And I would really like to give a lot more to charity. I would like to do a lot more for the support of my church. I would like to do a lot more for the support of the local Christian schools. I would like to do a lot more for um, a special work of charity in our community. I would like to do a lot more for the foreign mission of the church. It wouldn't be fascinating if we were all praying to God for bigger income so that we could give more to God's kingdom work in the world. Because you know what? We are rich already. Every one of us is rich. I know we live in an expensive market, the high cost of housing, high cost of living, high taxation. I know it's hard for young folks to even think about owning a home in this market. But still though, in Canada, considered globally, we are generally a rich people. Everybody has a fridge. Everybody has food in their cupboards. Everybody has a roof over their head. We have many opportunities for generosity. And so with that in mind, let me end this sermon with some words from the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 6, beginning at verse 17. The Apostle says, Teach those who are rich in the world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God, who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. By doing this, they will be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future so that they may experience true life. This is the word of God. Amen. Let us respond to God's word with singing from the 146th Psalm, stanzas 3, 4, and 5.
In Ephesians 4, at verse 4, the Apostle Paul writes as follows, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. With the church of all times and places, let us now confess this one faith, and let us do so with the words of the Apostles' Creed as found in him one. God in thanksgiving and prayer. Almighty God and gracious Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word. When we hear it, it exposes the deepest things of our hearts and it directs us so forcefully to the path of life. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for the good gifts which you shower upon us every day again. We praise you for our jobs our businesses, our paychecks, our pensions. We thank you, O Lord, for allowing all of us to provide for ourselves and our households and also to provide for those who at this time are not able to fully provide for themselves. Lord, in view of all of your many gifts to us, we pray this afternoon for the wisdom and humility to be good stewards of all that you entrust to our care. May we rejoice in your good gifts, and may we also be ready at all times to share them with others. As we live in hope of eternal life, work in our hearts a spirit of thankfulness and radical generosity. Lord, we thank you not only for financial gifts bestowed upon us, but also for many other kinds of gifts. Indeed, as we consider the sum total of our lives, everything that we are and everything that we have, we can see that we have nothing which you did not give to us. We thank you for health and strength. We thank you for freedom and opportunity. This afternoon, O oh Lord, we also desire to thank you for the beautiful gift of one another. You have given us to Christ, and in so doing, you have also given us to each other. And we pray that we may truly and greatly value one another as fellow believers in the family of our Heavenly Father. Help us, O Lord, to love each other sacrificially. Help us to minister to each other in upbuilding ways. Give us hearts of kindness and patience to one another. 
We pray this afternoon also for our pastor. Please give Pastor Tim wisdom and strength and courage as he fulfills his ministry of the word in our midst. Bless also his fellow elders and the deacons who together give leadership to this congregation. Lord, may our church be fully united in the gospel and may we grow in zeal for serving you in our homes, in our communities, and in our jobs. Bless us, O Lord, as we return shortly to our homes. May the peace of the gospel be in our hearts this Sunday evening, and may the joy of faith dwell in our hearts every day of this week. We pray this all in the blessed name of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen. The Lord gives you opportunity to um, show your generosity by your gifts for the support of the ministry of word and deed. And after your gifts have been gathered, let us sing in closing from hymn 85, stanzas 1, 2, and 3.